where we're going to be, starting at the beginning of James 3. If you'll go ahead and turn there, we'll read it together, and uh, then we can pray and look into this. James chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things." See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life, and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men. We have been made in the likeness, who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. Let's pray together. Lord, one of the unique things about us as humans is that you've given us the ability to communicate with words and it's that we can communicate very complex things to each other and that our earth is full of all these different languages, each with its own unique aspects and and beauty. But Lord, we also know that we have a tendency to hurt each other with our words. Lord, help us to hear from you this morning as we read these these warnings and this guidance from James. Help us to hear what you'd have to say. Help us to guard our tongues. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, spring 1996, I was a senior in high school, and the first album of what grew to be one of my favorite bands for a time came out that spring, a band by the name of Third Day. I don't listen to them as much anymore, but back then, there were the stuff. This guy had this great baritone voice, which I identified with, and I got this CD that had this bus on it with a Georgia peach on the front, because they're from Georgia, and all this other stuff. It was just, you know, it was kind of really eye-opening for me. And the first song on that CD is this song called Nothing At All, and during the kind of the instrumental part toward the end, he quotes from James 3. He, he reads part of this passage that we read this morning. So anytime... I come to James 3. That song just comes in my head. And the, the, the main line of the chorus was, 
if you can't say nothing good, don't say nothing at all. Now, English majors will probably have a cow at all the double negatives that are used in that sentence, but I think we get what he's trying to say. It's the same thing our mothers probably taught us several times when we were growing up. If you can't say anything good, don't say anything at all. It's a good, it's a good bit of advice. And so whenever we come to this, whenever I come to this passage, when I'm reading through, this is what comes to me. Uh, that song always comes to my head, so it's been running through my head a lot over the past couple of weeks. James starts off this passage, or, or this particular area, about warning teachers. He says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. Knowing as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. In the, being a teacher in the church is different than being a teacher otherwise. There's a lot of things that are very similar to it, but there's also some differences. In the church, a teacher instructs with authority. It's different than just offering your opinion. It's different than just giving pure information. And it's different than giving your testimony. And so for teachers, especially in the church, the danger is in teaching something that is not true. That's the danger that we have to guard ourselves about every time that we stand up to teach. And it doesn't matter whether it's intentional or not. Now, if somebody teaches something that's intentionally wrong and they know that it's wrong, that's called lying. That's, that's pretty much what that is. And I think we all understand that that's wrong. But if we can be mistaken. We're not above making mistakes. And that's why we have to watch each other and help correct each other. But the, the danger for teachers is that we would teach something that's not true. And as James says here, we will incur a stricter judgment, or your translation may have a greater condemnation. See, there's this weight, there's this responsibility when you teach. And it doesn't and, and your intentions, it's there whether your intentions are good or not. You can have the best intentions and still have to guard against this. And, and the warning in verse 2, it says, For we all stumble in many ways. The, one of the things that we fear as teachers is causing other people to stumble, either through what we say or if we live a life that's inconsistent with what we teach. In First Timothy, uh, Paul gives this warning to Timothy about some of the people that are in that church there. He says, They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. You see, not all believers, even true believers, not all true believers are able or qualified to teach. See, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we see that teaching men is the responsibility of men to teach other men. That's, that's clear in Scripture. We also see in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that being able to teach is one of the qualifications of being an elder. That's the unique qualification for being an elder above and beyond what you see uh, for a deacon in, in other positions. It doesn't mean that people in those other positions can't teach, but if you're going to be an elder, you have to be qualified. You have to be able to teach. It doesn't mean you're going to be awesome at it, but you have to be uh, proficient at it. And we also see in, in several different lists of spiritual gifts that some people are especially gifted by God to teach. If you look in Romans chapter 12 or 1 Corinthians 12 or Ephesians 4 where it lists these different spiritual gifts, these different things that God gifts people to do. Teaching is one of them. Because what can happen sometimes is people can operate out of their natural ability or out of their own knowledge. 
And if you teach in the church through that, it will eventually lead to tragedy, both for the church and for the teacher. Because if you're somebody who's just very naturally gifted at teaching, you can work your way up pretty quickly. You can get a lot of people who will listen to you. You'll get a lot of influence that maybe you are spiritually not able to handle. I think about these very young men who very quickly and very early in their career are leading very large churches, and they're not spiritually or emotionally mature enough to handle that. If you, and so you have this situation where you can have a church that's not founded on the right things, but you can also have a young man who can put himself in a very dangerous situation. Over the past several months, we've seen several very prominent ministers of the gospel who have fallen for different reasons, whether it's substance abuse or adultery or something like that. A lot of times, it's people operating out of a natural talent to do something instead of what God has given them. And sometimes we just fail. We just fall into sin. And when we talk about teaching in the church, it's not limited to the sermon. It's not limited to this time that we have on Sunday mornings where somebody stands up and and opens up the Word. These warnings that that James gives here and that we see elsewhere in Scripture uh, are, are a big part of why we limit who offers teaching during the open time of our service, who facilitate house fellowships, because this is a big responsibility, and we don't want to put somebody in that situation that's not that doesn't meet the biblical qualifications of who should teach, but also spiritually not ready for it. Because I think if you've been in church long enough, you've seen people put in that position who were not qualified to do it and the the consequences of that. In verse 2, it says, If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Uh, Most of you all know I was kind of raised in the country. I didn't have horses, but I was around horses when I was younger. If you don't know what a bridle is, it's the straps and things that go around the head of the horse so that you put your reins on it and you can guide it around. It's how you control the horse. Back in James chapter 1, in verse 26, he says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. This man's religion is worthless. And then just before that, in verse 19 of chapter 1, he says, This you know, my beloved, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. You say, you say, well, why is this? Well, we were talking about those verses a couple of weeks ago in our house fellowship, and Jessica, I think it was Jessica, brought up. He says, you can have this great long relationship with someone, but one word can ruin it. One word can cause so much hurt and so much damage that you may never fully recover from it. And there may be a lot of grace and forgiveness there, but you still go, I forgive you, but that still hurts. And that can happen. That's when we have to really guard our tongue. And if a person can control their tongue, they're likely to have overall good self-control. If they can control what they say, they probably can control how they react to temptation. They can probably control their anger. They can probably control a lot of these things. But the opposite is also true. If a person cannot control the words that come out of their mouth, they likely fail in a lot of other areas too. And that's why we have to be really careful. If a person can't govern their tongue, you don't give them power and influence 
and you don't give them a stage, that's, I mean, that's just feeding into all the bad things that this person, it, you're not doing them any favors. And I think probably the first thing that comes to mind for us as politicians who get in trouble for all the things that come out of their mouth or sometimes more disturbingly don't get in trouble for all the things that come out of their mouth. But it can happen to anyone who gets in front of people and speaks on a regular basis because the more often you speak publicly, the more likely it is that you're going to say something foolish. It, it, you know that if, if someone becomes famous all of a sudden and they're not used to having people paying attention to everything they say, they can say some pretty foolish things. And that's why a lot of people who are in these positions end up closing themselves off so that they don't get themselves in more trouble. And if a person is in a position of authority, whether large or small, careless words can have a big, long-lasting impact, can have a long-lasting effect. In verse 2, he says, if he's able, uh, if he does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. And, and, you know, in James' context, he's not meaning perfect as in never does anything wrong. But he's using perfect in the same way that he used it in chapter 1, where he says that this person is mature and complete, lacking nothing. So it's really the idea of being complete and mature rather than perfection is what is in mind here. He gives a couple of illustrations in these next couple of verses. He talks about a horse. He says, now if we put the bits into horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. As I mentioned, you have this bridle that goes around the head of the horse, but then you have this little piece of um, rubber or plastic or metal, maybe in the old days wood, that goes right into their mouth. And what you can do with this is when you pull on the reins, it gives that horse, it lets them know that you want them to go to the right or you want them to go to the left or you want them to stop. Horses can weigh over 2,000 pounds, yet that you can put a child on there and put those reins in their hand. As long as the child knows what they're doing and the horse is trained, they can steer this 2,000-pound animal wherever they want it to go, which is just an amazing thing. In verse 4, he talks about uh, the ships. He says, Look at the ships also. Though they are great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. When I was in Boy Scouts, we learned how to sail. And it was not the big sailboats that you see on TV or something like that. It was basically the size of a canoe. One or two people could sit in it. You had a sail, and you had a rudder on the back. And the rudder is just a board that sticks into the water off the back of the ship. And on a small boat, you'll have it just on a handle, like you would an outboard motor. On a larger ship, like the ones you'd see you know, in the history books and the, or the pirate ships or whatever you might have, there'd be a big wheel that has ropes that ties down to this rudder. The rudder, in comparison to the size of the ship, is quite small. And even though it's these great winds that are pushing the sails, that are giving it all that force, it's this rudder that gives it the direction. So just this small piece can put it where it wants to go. And that's the way it is with our tongue. It says in verse 5, So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. The danger that we have is that we boast about more than we can back up. We, we may boast about our athletic ability and our bodies not be able to keep up with it. We may boast about our skill in something and then not be able to back it up. That's where our tongue can get us in trouble. See, the tongue has influence and power far beyond its size. It has great influence and power far beyond its 
the relative size of the tongue to the rest of our body. Let's keep going, starting in the middle of verse 5. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. This, this brought to mind to me just how dangerous it is. I think about the forest fires that are burning out west. Many times this time of year during the summer, California, Nevada, Arizona, these areas are drought-stricken, and then something happens and it starts these huge fires. Uh, The National Fire Protection Agency estimated that there were 90,800 smoking material-related fires in the U.S. in 2010. Smoking materials like cigarette butts, matches, something like that. Those fires caused 610 deaths, 1,570 injuries, and $663 million in direct property damage. 12% of brush, grass, and forest fires were started by smoking materials, ranking fifth on the list of causes. What happens is somebody has a cigarette butt. It's not all the way out. Flick it out a window. Or they light their cigarette with a match and then throw the match away, and it's not all the way out. Then you hit these leaves or something like that that are very dry, and before you know it, you've started a forest fire that can destroy hundreds or thousands of acres, put many people's homes and lives at risk. The other thing that happens is people smoke in bed and then fall asleep and the cigarette hits the sheets or something like that, and you end up burning down your house. That small, not even a flame really, just these embers cause huge destruction. And that's what happens with our tongues. See, these fires are not set intentionally. Sometimes do people, people do start fires intentionally, but that's not what we're talking about here. They were just careless. But the damage is extensive just the same. And it's just like our words. We can be careless with our words, but they can hurt just as much as if we were intentionally trying to hurt somebody. And sometimes the careless words hurt more because most of the time we usually guard what we say But then in that moment, we might say something careless that really shows what's in our hearts, really shows what we truly think about somebody when we're careless with our words. And and it's not even always the actual words, but rather the tone or the timing or the body language that comes with it. I I give a presentation about presentation skills, and and there's some research that shows that anywhere to 50 to 60% of the information you convey is through your body language. And they do these tests to where somebody is speaking and they're saying one thing that may be very nice, but they have a very mean look on their face. You don't even really hear the words. All you have is the mean look. And you're like, well, what are they trying to tell me? It's, it's really inconsistent. So how we say things is often as important or more important as what we say. And in our modern world of technology and social media, This applies there, too. He's talking about the tongue, but he's really talking about the fingers on the keyboard as well, too. Because what can happen is, if I say something in front of you, okay, it may eventually get around. If I post something on Twitter or Facebook, it's wildfire. It's gone. If I say something really awful like that, it can spread. So It can be around the world in seconds. So... He may say tongue here, but he's talking about any way that we communicate with people. In verse 6, 
He says, And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. He says world of iniquity. It's this figure of speech talking about the immense quantity of evil that can come from it. And he says it's set on fire by hell. It's like, wow, my tongue is set on fire by hell. That's pretty dramatic. But we have to recognize the source of this evil. The source of all evil is from the devil himself. And so when we have these words that come out of our mouths that are evil, we have to recognize their source. He says the tongue defiles the entire body. Jesus said in Matthew 15, But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and this defiles a man. See, they were arguing about what they ate, thinking that what they ate is what defiled them. But Jesus says, no, what you eat goes through your body and goes out. It's what comes out of your mouth that defiles you. In verse 7, he goes through and says, Every species of beast and bird, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no man can tame the tongue. All these different types of animals, we either can domesticate them or we can control them. We don't typically live in fear of any animal that we can't conquer in one way or the other. Yeah, if we run across a snake or a bear and we're not expecting it, yeah, we're fearful. But we can prepare ourselves for that. And if we're prepared, we can deal with that. There's no animal that we are still living in fear of if we're prepared. But what that teaches us and what James says here is that there's no, we're better at taming and controlling animals than we are at controlling the tongue and our mouth. He says, no one can tame the tongue. And I don't think he's saying here that it's impossible. I think what he's saying is it's extremely difficult. If, if you're one of these people who has the tendency to stick your foot in your mouth, you can know how hard it is control the tongue. It's not impossible. It is extremely difficult. It requires constant effort. Your your tongue is never broken. You know, like with a horse, you break a horse and you get them to obey you. The tongue is never broken. It keeps wanting to say and do these awful things. And it doesn't necessarily get easier with age and maturity. I think in some ways it does. But it doesn't necessarily, because I think sometimes we think, well, I'm old enough and I'm mature enough, I can say whatever I want to, and, and it's all right. Probably not. Um, you know, I, I think we all kind of jokingly sometimes think about our grandmothers or something like that to say she can, you know, she's old enough, she, she has the right to say whatever she wants. But just because you have the right to say something doesn't mean it's the right thing to say. There's a big difference there. Let's keep going. Looking at verse 9. In verse 9, he says, speaking of the tongue, he says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. There's this old saying that you probably learned as a kid. Maybe your mom said, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I don't want to diss on anybody's mom. That's a lie. Words hurt. Words can hurt a lot. You just think about bullying. If, you're, if you, you want to see a parent get riled up, 
Let them know their kid been bullied. They're going to deal with it. One way or the other, they're going to deal with it. But think about now in our world, like I mentioned, of social media. I read an article a week or two ago um, saying that social media is now the primary venue that kids are bullied in. Because it used to be, if you got bullied at school, you went home at the end of the day and you were fine. You got away from it. You don't even have to be awake to be bullied on social media. It's horrible. And what they, the kids can't escape from it. And what they've shown is that this, uh, this culture of bullying, especially on social media, has led to increased suicides among not just the victims, but the bullies as well. Because bullies are trying to make themselves feel better by bullying other kids. They've got their own hurt. And that's just the way they deal with it. And so my point of saying that is our, our words, they are powerful. They do hurt. The, the reason that James gives here of why we shouldn't do these things he says, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. See, all people are made in the likeness of God. We see that in Genesis chapter 1. It's from the very beginning that we're made in the image of God. And it's not limited to just people who are believers or people who agree with you. But it's all people. All people should receive dignity and respect. You know, in Matthew chapter 22 they were trying to trap Jesus about paying taxes. And he says, well, give me one of the coins. And on the coin was the image of Caesar. And he says, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, because it's got his face on it. He said, but give to God what is God's. And what's God's? Us. We're in his image. We belong to him. In the same way that that coin belonged to Caesar... We belong to God because we're made in His image. And so if a person is made in the image of God, we shouldn't wish harm on them. We shouldn't inflict insults on them. Because what happens is when we see this word curse here, he's not primarily talking about profanity. That's not what he's really talking about. But the roots of cursing, as we would call it, are much darker and more dangerous than many realize. He said in verse 10, he says, From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. He's, he's positioning these opposites, blessing and cursing. See, when we, think, when we hear the word cursing, we think about saying something offensive to somebody in a, when we're angry or when we're annoyed. Now, that's its own sin. We can talk, that's elsewhere in Scripture. But that's the second definition of cursing. If you look it up in a dictionary, that's the second definition. The first definition of cursing is to invoke or use a curse against someone, to wish misfortune, evil, or doom upon them. That's what the biblical concept of cursing is, is to wish this evil on somebody. Let me give you a, couple of, a few examples. In 2 Kings chapter 2, Elisha was being ridiculed by this group of young men. Elisha curses them, and God sends some bears out of the woods and mauls the young men. It's a pretty powerful curse there. In Matthew 21, also in Mark 11, Jesus curses a fig tree 
and the fig tree dies. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, it talks about someone who is hung on a tree is cursed. And this was applied to Jesus in Galatians chapter 3 where it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In other words, a curse is not trivial. It is not just a word or something that comes out of our mouth and then goes away. And James concludes this, this paradox, or not really a paradox, but these these contrasting views, and he says, My brethren, these things ought not to be this way, which I think is a pretty big understatement. He's giving a bit of a soft rebuke there. But what he says is absolutely true. The, the believer's life and their speech cannot be one of contradiction, hypocrisy, or evil intent. You can't say one thing and then say the opposite or something completely out of character the next time and expect to be considered uh, that things are right with you. He gives two more illustrations here. In verse 11, he says, Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. See, the idea of the fountain is what comes out. You can say that the fountain is like our mouths, the things that come out of it. If you have a fountain that's putting out bad water and sometimes putting out good water, are you going to risk drinking from that fountain? I think about the folks in Flint, Michigan, who've had all this trouble with their water, the lead contamination. It's going to be a long time before I drink any public water from Flint, Michigan, because it was good for a while, and then you had all this poison come through it. I don't want to drink that water. I don't want to risk it. And in verse 12, he talks about this tree. Because you're not going to get one type of fruit from a different type of tree. You're not going to get olives from a fig tree, and you're not going to get figs from an olive vine. It's just not going to happen because at its heart, where it's coming from, it's fundamentally different. See, it's not just about watching our words, which can become legalism, to where we're just like, well, there's just certain things I don't say, I don't do. It can become legalism. But, what your wor- but it's really about what your words reveal about your heart. Matthew 12, Jesus says, The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That's Jesus saying that about our words. See, it's a powerful part of our sinful nature to hurt others with our words, which is why James gives these warnings here. He's warning us. He's warning us as believers how dangerous our words can be. And the three things that I, that I see that he talks about, when he talks about teachers, he talks about teaching things that are untrue. And then when he says the tongue is fire, he's showing us how dangerous our words can be, especially if we handle them carelessly. And then when he speaks of cursing, he talks about us wishing harm on people. We should not wish harm 
on other people. And this inconsistency of blessing God at, you know, at one moment and then cursing somebody the next. See, our, our tongue must be brought into subjection. It must be controlled just like the rest of our bodies and our life. We can't just go off and say whatever we want and expect for God to be happy with us. Ultimately, this control, this subjugation of our tongue, it can only be done through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can only put into our our own efforts so much and get so far. But if a believer's life is really under the influence of the Holy Spirit, these things will be much less common in their lives. See, with our mouths, we can tear down, but we can also build up. And sometimes, the best thing that we can do is just shut our mouths and be silent. Uh, Proverbs actually has a lot to say about our words. In uh, Proverbs 17, he says, Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. Or there's, a, there's a saying that's been attributed to a bunch of different folks that it says, Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than speak and remove all doubt. Something, the best thing we can do is just close our mouth. And there's a lot of time I do that when I'm around people and I'm not quite sure what the situation is. The best thing I can do is say very little. But what I want to encourage us to do is to use our words to build up. I want to build, I want, I don't want to be a church that's, that's silent when we should be building up and encouraging people. See, our, our speech can be fresh, sweet water in places that are really dry. And our words can be good fruit to those around us. We're in a world that needs encouragement, that needs good words, that needs to be lifted up. In Proverbs 16, it says, Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Proverbs 12, verse 25 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it it glad. A few verses before that, it says, The tongue of the wise brings healing. That's what our words can do. There's the potential for them to do great harm, but there's also the potential for them to do great good, to really heal, to comfort people. In the New Testament, Paul writes about this in a few different places. Ephesians 4 is a really good chapter to to read on this. I'll read a couple of verses. In Ephesians 4, Paul writes, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So this idea of speaking truth instead of speaking things that are untrue. In Ephesians, uh, later on in that chapter, he says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but... Only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. That word edification means encouragement or to build up. So he's saying, don't let these unwholesome things come out, but here's what should be coming out. Your words should be encouraging. Your words should be building up. And also, according to the need of the moment, sometimes knowing what to say at the right time is really important rather than say, well, I had this thought and I need to say it. Well, is this the right time for that? 
sometimes when people, I think about when people are grieving, we, we go and be with them and we try, we want to do something to make them feel better. Sometimes we don't need to say anything. We just need to be there. Because some, a lot of the things that we try to say when somebody is hurting, just they're inadequate. They seem trite. So knowing what the need of the moment is, and he says, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Over in Colossians chapter 4, he writes, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Or the way we speak should be addressed to the person we're speaking to, not just a blank canvas. And we can do that when we're actually in relationships with people, when we actually know them. We know what's going on in their lives, not just making assumptions or guessing. So instead of teaching untruths or being careless with our words or or wishing harm on people, we should speak truth. We should be careful to edify, build up, and encourage people. And we should speak with grace. When you realize that you've been forgiven, when you realize how many times you've said foolish things and people have not hated you for it, then it makes you want to speak with grace to other people as well. Since we come to our open time that we have here, I don't want the things that I've said, especially about teaching, make you not want to participate. That's not what I want to accomplish there. But I think James's warning is fair. That if you're going to teach, it's a huge responsibility. There's a, there's a big part of that, and there are big consequences for that. But don't let that keep you from saying the good word that God has given you, the encouragement for one another, the testimony of what He's done in your life, the reading of His Scripture, the, the songs that we sing. That... Singing songs to one another and to God is as biblical as it gets. So as we come to this time, think on these things and think on these things tomorrow where work is not going so well or when um, the kids are on your last nerve and you've just about had it or when your cat wakes you up at 4 a.m., which happens to us fairly regularly. Not always nice words come to mind when that happens. But think of those things that edify, that give grace, that build up. Let's pray together. Lord, our our tongues, our words have the potential to do so much harm. But Lord, we know they have the potential and the ability to do so much good. To give grace, to build up to communicate truth. So Lord, we ask that you would give us a clear mind, clear discernment of the words that we should use. And Lord, give us discernment of the times when we should be silent and listen and just be there. But Lord, I pray that our, our, our mouths would be fountains of fresh, sweet water to people who are dry that it would be that our hearts would be the roots of the good fruit that people need. And Lord, as we go into this, this time, 
where we remember you. Lord, I, I remember how careful you were with your words when you walked this earth, that you always had the right words to say, that you always knew what the real situation was. And Lord, even when you were facing death, you knew that there were times to be silent. So Lord, we remember you for that. We ask your blessing on the bread and the cup as we come to remember you. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Jesus.